0: The amount of chief people officer job openings over the last quarter have been climbing. And the average tenure of a CPO is around two years right now, especially in technology companies. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is just the the demands and stress on the role are leading to burnout at an earlier and earlier stage. And in today's episode, I'm really excited to explore that aspect of a CPO role and the pressures and stress that that role creates with the Chief People Officer of Credit Karma, Colleen McCreary. Colleen is an industry veteran across technology roles with uh, people executive positions at a range of companies, including Microsoft, Zynga, Climate Corporation, Credit Karma, and more. And we're going to spend some time digging into her career path. And the key learnings from that, that it has shaped her role at Credit Karma. But we're also going to really dig into a recent LinkedIn post where she wrote about burnout and how most CPOs have a couple of these roles under their belt before they move on to consulting and why that is. And we want to shine a bit of a brighter light on the topic of burnout in HR, because I think it's something that we're seeing more of and will only increase as the demands of this position increase. So I'm excited to dig into that conversation with her after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches, brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called The Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at amplifytalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am really excited today to be joined by the Chief People Officer at Credit Karma, Colleen McCreary. We are going to dig into her vast experience across a range of companies, uh, including heavy roles in tech, and really get into some media topics around some of the things that are really impacting modern HR leaders today, which include burnout and just all of the pressures that are associated with leading a high-performing people function. So. Colleen, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. If you don't mind, why don't you give the listeners a brief intro and background on you?
1: Great. Thanks, Lars. So as you mentioned, I'm Colleen McCreary, and I'm currently the chief people officer at Credit Karma. And I have a long history in sort of recruiting in HR roles over over 20 years um, at a variety of companies. I spent the first half of my career um, at large public technology companies and then I made the switch to startup land and so I've spent the last 11 years primarily focused on generally being the first uh, head of people chief you know CHRO whatever you want to call it chief people officer at a number of startups and uh, and sort of consulting with them and I also happen to be the proud mom of a 14 year old son and have an amazing partner who has supported me through all of these jumps and leaps.
0: Yeah, well, Colleen, there's a lot to get into in your background, but I want to kind of take it back to the beginning. Uh, You you started your career at Microsoft initially as a recruiter. Um, When did that transition from recruiting to HR happen for you?
1: So I actually loved my time in recruiting. Um, in fact, I still love that aspect of of my role. Um, you know, both recruiting externally as well as you know always recruiting internally, keeping our employees uh, engaged in our current company. Um, but it was really at EA. I was reporting to the head of recruiting. I happened to be doing a skip level meeting with her boss, who was the head of HR, and she was the person who broached the topic with me. Uh, that I should move into an HR business partner role. And I kind of looked at her like she was crazy and said, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I don't I don't like rules. I don't like policies. Like, that that's not really my jam. Uh, she, you know, had a lot of confidence and faith and felt really strongly that I should try it out. And, you know, one of the biggest advantages I've had in my career is I've tended to say yes to a lot of things when people have put them in front of me. And I, you know, it was a promotion to report directly to her. So I I did it and turned out she was right.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think uh I, I think a lot of people who've kind of made that transition from recruiting to HR, there's this view of like, oh, recruiting is very much, you know, X. And the idea of then moving to an HR role, um, I think a lot of time, especially back then, recruiting often viewed itself as like a a separate function, right? That wasn't really integrated. Yeah. I think that that thinking has changed, thankfully. But uh but yeah, I remember Back in the day there was very much a oh well, no we're recruiting like we're not even part of hr actually at one point and i've i've you know called myself out on this before i i had said in a conversation these words came out of my mouth no 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 i'm in recruiting we're like the green berets of hr <laughs> and yeah I, I still feel shame when i say that out loud but i think it's important to own your past and right. uh, so I, i'm with you there
1: right right or the cool kids That's what I used yeah. to yeah <laughs> the cool, cool kids, kids. Right. What,
0: you know, um, one of the things that uh, I found interesting in your background, you know, when you were at EA, you were responsible for building the first company wide diversity initiative within a EA. And and I'm always, you know, interested in learning kind of origin stories behind first programs. W- where did that initiative come from? How did it come to be? How did you get tasked with leading it?
1: Sure. So I, you know, it, People will look at back at this now, but when I was in graduate school way back when, um, I actually did my thesis work on the retention of women in engineering and computer science programs. Um, which now today people would say like, oh, that's a that's a really popular topic. Of course, people should be looking into it. We you know spend a lot of time on that in the '90s. That might not necessarily have been the case. And so I I had carried that sort of passion and interest with me into sort of the roles that I'd had and the jobs that I had. I it's spent a lot of time focusing on that during my days at Microsoft. Um, and then when I was at EA, the, the job I had there was to build their first college recruiting and university relations program. And at a lot of companies, that is the zone that people assume will solve all their diversity problems. Um, that's not true, but it certainly is one path to, to helping with that. So um, I was really using that team and that work as a way to say, hey, we can diversify your workforce. We can go to some of these schools. We can attract more folks. We, you know, like like look at the business that we have um, at the time at EA. One of their best, you know, performing games was The Sims, which, you know, the majority of that audience was female gamers. And so it was really important, you know, we could really tie that business story uh, thankfully, we had some business leaders who were also very encouraged by the idea of like, hey, I would love to see different people on my teams. Uh, and at the same time, I was moving into that HR role that you know I was sort of being pushed into. It became a really good springboard to say, hey, I'm going to be working more across across the whole company. How about you give me a chance to pick a few things that we can really go after? and, um, and tie all of these things together. So that was, that was really the start. The Genesis was much more sort of grassroots, um, just sort of work and projects that were happening. And it just took sort of the, the opportunity of positioning it as, Hey, this is important to a lot of leaders. Why don't we just put a bow around it and make it, you know, a bigger company deal. So, um, I'm, I'm actually super proud of that. I'm really happy that you, you sort of picked up on that. Uh, it's something that I, because I have had this long history in it. I don't always myself talk about it as much. It's just sort of who part of who I am and what I've done. Um, But I do think that, you know, sort of, it's great to see that more companies see this as important for whatever reasons. Um, But certainly there really is always a business tie to those results that have been proven um, that the more diverse you can, you know, sort of make your team and inclusive, the better results you're going to have. Right. As well, I think it's
0: also important, you know, as you mentioned at the time that you led that initiative, the, the conversation around diversity and inclusion wasn't what it is today. Um, and so being creating a program like that for the first time at an organization like that, that was, you know, there weren't a lot of companies necessarily focusing on that the same way. So that, that, you know, that probably was uh, groundbreaking, uh, not just for them doing it for the first time, but even within the tech space, there really hadn't been a lot of concerted effort around that time yet. Yeah. Right. You know, one of the uh, other aspects of your role at EA that I found interesting, um, you had a a five month temporary assignment leading HR for India that required you know you to relocate to Hyderabad and and drive that team um, before you left EA. What was that process like for you? How did you how did you prepare yourself for that transition? I think the idea of second months or or roles where people um, you know in people leadership roles might be overseeing a different uh, group, there's probably a lot of, uh, of of learnings there, perhaps what to do or what not to do. So, what uh, what was mm-hmm. that process like for you?
1: Yeah, so you know, I think this is again one of those opportunities in life when someone comes to you and says, "Hey, we we have this really interesting uh, assignment. We um, had just acquired a company that was in India, uh, as as well as many other locations, and." they the hr person that they had acquired with that company was going on maternity leave and so it was sort of a double win of hey we need some coverage here and we also need somebody to go over and help integrate um the, you know sort of the company we acquired into the ea you know would you be interested in doing that and i think you know i had a 3 year old son at the time my my partner he works full time like you know, it's not an easy yes, but it was very easy for me to say, yeah, I'm going to, of course, I'm going to try that. That's new. That's different. I'm going to, I'm going to go do that. Um, And then, you know, I actually didn't have a lot of time to prepare. I think I had like four weeks before I had to get on an airplane and go. And, um, and so I think, you know, if you think about what I could have done better, what I would have done differently, if I could have spent more time on the upfront, especially understanding the Indian, the local market, around our business, which was video games, that, you know, I I really walked in with the assumption that everybody plays video games, what are you talking about? And what I realized and had to learn when I was there, was that at that point in time, the technical infrastructure and the cost of games and sort of how they were played and what we were talking about with games, the majority of the people in that country really were not big gamers, they weren't gamers, and they hadn't played those games, they didn't even have access to most of those games, and so when you think about talent and finding talent who can come and work on your product, who really have no exposure to it or understanding of it, or what you know, sort of the creativity aspects or the technical aspects, or even just sort of the what is that user experience. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any of that before I got there, uh, so that was a big learning um, and really had to change. My thinking in terms of both an integration, like how do we how do we get this company that was acquired, so it's a team of people who didn't choose to come work at our company, right? They chose to work at their other company, yeah. Um, and also create pride and start to build the relationships between that organization and sort of all of the other EA locations around the world. So, um, I mean, that five months was a really impactful time, just from a you know sort of learning perspective on my own. Um, and, you know, sort of how do you, how do you create those bridges? And it's also, you know, it really created a lot of empathy for me when you have remote employees or people who are in other remote offices. I think that learning personally was so helpful to me throughout all of the other companies I went to after that, of what it means to, you know, have to be on calls at midnight and one o'clock in the morning because no one has thought about the time zone differences or the shifting or what can do better. Um, all of those kinds of things you, you, you sort of end up taking with you, which just makes you such a better leader when you've, you've, you know, really had that personal empathy and personal experience that you can draw from or what it's like to be, you know, sort of an expat in somebody else's country. Yeah. Well, that's
0: so many interesting points in there. And I think that it, uh, the, the, the piece about, you know, gaining empathy for people that are are remote and kind of outside of that corporate office. I think that that, especially looking at what you've done since I imagine those lessons have kind of are things that you've been able to be kind of proactively thoughtful for and about in, in all of your subsequent roles, because they've all been kind of larger global uh, globally kind of diverse and mixed organizations.
1: Right. I think the other piece to that um, is that there is great talent everywhere And they can be successful in your organization i think we in certainly in silicon valley are very narrowly focused around it has to be done here we have to find the people here (laughs) i mean I, i feel like i say that all the time even outside of you know just even outside of san francisco in the united states i have to continually say like hey there is really great talent everywhere I uh, feel like it, it just boggles my mind at how often people struggle with that concept, even people who are not from the Bay area. Right. I'm like, well, you came from somewhere else originally. i like, and you seem to be pretty bright. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I feel like we continually uh, live in our own bubble and make those assumptions. And, and really, you know, even with experience, like even when you have worked somewhere, um that has a growing team and a growing company that's getting great results like even using that as a proof point sometimes isn't enough um but it's helped me be able to articulate that message and also then feel comfortable that i will be right (laughs) you know sort of the confidence (laughs) that i know that we will be successful in building teams elsewhere and that we will find great talent as long as we put in all of the right tools to make those people feel like they are part of the team. And we teach our people in all of the locations as sort of, you know, how to work with people across locations, which I think is the other half of the equation.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that Silicon Valley bubble for a moment, because I know, <laughs> you know in addition to your your role as a chief people officer, your kind of time in that space, you're also a technical advisor to the actual show, Silicon Valley, on HBO. And so how did that come to be? How did you get connected uh, with that show? Let's start there.
1: Yeah, so that was actually been a really fun experience. The, um, The writers on that show over the years have done a great job of always wanting to really find Um, the most accurate portrayal possible. And so they, you know, sort of always reaching out for folks. I had sort of two people who I think pulled me into that. One, a former CEO of mine has been an advisor to them for a long time and on the show. Uh, I actually lived in fear that um, something that I had done was going to show up on the show and I would see it and just (laughs) be like, oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So it was actually one of my deep seated fears that I had. And... Um, But realistically, uh, somebody I have known actually since he was an intern at Microsoft who built his long career over, you know, sort of in tech tech companies, building tech companies, and eventually became a venture capitalist. He actually went and spent the last year in the writer's room as a full-time writer. Um, And for this most recent season, they had decided to actually bring on an HR person, and they wanted to make it realistic. And he knew me and said, hey, I think I know the person for you. And so... He reached out, and I decided to, you know, jump in with both feet of my fear and say, "Well, if you know if they're going to have have this HR person, I might as well give them the stories and the, the the persona to have."
0: Interesting. So, okay, so I imagine you probably, you know, whether pitching stories or just giving tangible examples, what was your what was your favorite over the top startup story that uh, you know either you shared or you didn't? And feel free to, uh, you know, anonymize it uh, to to protect the uh, guilty. Uh, if you need to but like what uh, having spent uh you know uh, most of your career working in hr in the valley i imagine you have a lot of them so what do you have a favorite one does one stand out to you
1: well i mean we i have a obviously have a lot i spent um two hours one day telling the writers a whole bunch of stories um and they're not always necessarily over the top i certainly have some of the crazy things like when um, employees protested because we went from having de hard-boiled eggs to making them have to shell their own hard-boiled <laughs> eggs. I mean, and you're laughing, but that is very true. Um, the, the outrage of that, how dare we? Uh, I mean, there, there's certainly those kinds of things or – um, you know, the fact that when you're a small startup and you're the CEO, that everybody still goes to you for everything. So, you know, like when the toilets weren't working and things like that, people would email our CEO and say like, Hey, the toilet on the second floor isn't working today. <laughs> things like that. That's just, I think is outside of the realm of m- most people's sort of day-to-day reality. Uh, but I think the you know, the story that really resonates that isn't sort of as funny, but it is very truthful of what startup life is like is... Um, When I was working at Zynga early on, I think, well, early on, I think we were probably six or 700 employees. Um, You know, I think most people who know our company know that we really foundationally um, grew as Facebook grew. We were sort of, um, we were on their platform, a lot of our games and the sort of success there. And we had gotten some notice from Facebook on a Friday night that we um, that we potentially needed to break up with Facebook, that we were not, and, you know, we're only 600 pe- people at the time. That's the, our, our primary growth. And so Saturday morning, you know, the entire board, the, our management team, we're there at like 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning, sort of figuring out, like, what are we going to do? Like, if we're off Facebook, like, what is our business? What do we go do? Um, and we spent the next three weeks as a company really rallying around building our own platform and our own network um, to the extent that, you know, people were sleeping on the floor and on the couches. We were there every single day. I was training my recruiting team into how to be customer service agents to make sure that the network was working. Like, I mean, this whole three week experience of like, oh my gosh, our business is at risk and we're gonna have to do whatever it takes to survive. Um, Then it ended up everything was fine and it didn't matter. So, but, you know, like that's, that's real life startup land. Um, yeah. And sort of the paranoia and, you know, what, what are you going to do? And, you know, I, I actually still look back at that too, as like a really proud moment because we, as a company, we had a value around putting the company first. And that was really a big test of, you know, would people stop whatever they're doing um, on their games and, you become, you know, sort of do whatever it took to keep the company alive. So, um so I shared that. I mean, I you know, shared a lot of crazy fun things. Um it was really cool to watch the show and see kind of what ended up in the show, um how my HR character ended up being portrayed. It was <laughs> uh it was crazy. It was really really crazy. It was it was really fun. I had never done anything like that before and Um, it's definitely been, um, I never knew how many people watched the credits because I got a lot of messages from people saying, is this you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, that was me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's wild. You know, the, the Zynga story is interesting because you know, you, you joined Zynga at a very early stage, I believe you were on 130 employees when you got there and about 4,000 when you left, which obviously is pretty, pretty, uh, <laughs> meteoric growth, uh, for, right. for any sector. So what, looking back on your time kind of driving that growth, what, what stands out, you know, you mentioned this, which might be in the running. So since you, uh, since you already mentioned the, uh, the transition out of Facebook story, uh, outside of that, like what stands out the most to you from those uh, three years?
1: I think there are a lot of, I mean, things like I probably could write a whole book <laughs> about that. I learned, learned so much. I mean, I look back at that time. It was really crazy hard. Um, you know, we I think we were on the front end of, you know, sort of the mainstream media starting to pay attention to what happened in tech companies. And that that was a learning Um you know, I've actually I stayed away from doing these kinds of things because I'm actually kind of scared of the press. Um, <laughs> but you know, what I really look back on is you know the ability to deal with ambiguity. You know, if you had told me when I joined that we were 130 people and at the end of my first year we would be. 600 people At the end of my second year would be 1500 people in the end of my third year we'd do 4,000 people I would have laughed in your face we' you know we didn't know that was going to happen so you can't always plan for everything and you you have to be reacting to the business and what, what's happening um, you know we did t- 20 something acquisitions during that time and and expanded all over the world I, I would have never been able to predict any of that I don't think our CEO would have been be able to predict any of that. And you, you know, sort of you, you have to make decisions with the information that you have in front of you at that time and, and sort of trust yourself. Um, there were a lot of times that I doubted myself, like um, what, you know, can I do this? Am I the right person for this? You know, many times I went to my CEO to say like, maybe you should bring in somebody who's more experienced than I have. Um, and the best part is that I felt very supported um, by many folks on our board and, and my CEO who, who were really like, if it's not you, Who? Like, you you know, this company, you've been here from the beginning, you know, who else is going to do this? You know, there isn't anywhere right. we can go to. No one else has done this before. Um, and so, you know, at least I had people who were supporting me and there are certainly things that... I could have done differently or better i look back on a um the first time we had to do a layoff which was like the hardest thing that's ever happened to me in my career i felt very um that 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 felt like my fault i still will say that to this day that i knew we were hiring too quickly and i couldn't convince the business leaders to stop hiring at that point in time and you know that's my that was my job and so you know i took that really hard um but the thing I'm really proud of is, yeah, we built this company um, that's still around. It's got a really decent, um, you know, valuation. We, we created a lot of wealthy people um, because they signed up for this, this gig that a lot of people. We created a lot of fun for the players. We created a whole new genre of gaming and we hired amazing talent that have gone on to do so many cool things in the world in terms of creating their own startups and the businesses that they've been a part of. And I think that that's the thing I'm most proud of. We just did a big actually poker night reunion uh, a few weeks ago and and that community has stayed stayed really tight. And I think that means that we created something really special. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's something really satisfying, I think, for uh, for practitioners and people leadership roles and recruiting leadership roles when you can you can stay in touch with the uh, kind of alumni networks of organizations that you help build and just see what they go on to do and maintain those connections. That's just, there's something really, I mean, we always talk about HR. One of the things that, that draws a lot of people to the field is the the impact we have on people and then the ability to see them grow and develop over their career. And that that actually right. doesn't end when you leave that company or when they leave that company. Like those those relationships often transcend, you know, current employment. So it's, uh, it, it's cool that you're still having those uh, get togethers.
1: Right. And I always say, I mean, I think that that's the, the, the joy of social media, right? So we can be politically correct and say, oh, these things are bad and all of that. But really, those tools have created it, uh, an environment where it's so much easier to stay in touch with people and keep those connections and find out what they're doing and reach out and, and, and share that information. I mean, my, my head of recruiting at Credit Karma is someone that I worked with 20 years ago at Microsoft on the same college recruiting team. Uh, you know, and we, we've we worked together off and on over the years. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm in the Bay Area. You know, we've been able to, you know, sort of when I've had right opportunities for people, um, bring them back into, you know, the companies I'm working at or help f- help them find their next gig. I, I take a huge amount of pride in having developed these networks and relationships of people where I'm still helping them find find their passion and find, you know, sort of what's the best fit for them. Sometimes it's with me. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. Um. But that, yeah, I mean, I, I light up talking about some of the people and what they've been able to do in their careers and the fact that I've gotten to work with them at some point or help them get that first job or what what have you.
0: Yeah, so you after Zynga, uh, you had CPO roles at the Climate Corporation and Vivo before landing in your your current role at Credit Karma. So for for listeners who aren't familiar with Credit Karma, if you could just take a minute, and just you know, give an overview of what the company does, uh, and then kind of how it's structured in terms of employees uh, and how your HR team is kind of structured to support them.
1: Yeah, so Credit Karma is a financial technology company who is focused on helping their members make financial progress. Um, we've been around for almost 13 years. We have our roots um, and we were the first company to do free credit scores for people long before that was ever, you know, something that you could do. It was really tedious to find out what your credit score was. We, we help, uh, we give people free financial advice. We do free taxes. We help people um, get mortgages. We have a free savings product. So all of these different financial benchmarks in your life, we are providing a service to you um, 100% free. We have over 100 million monthly users of Credit Karma, uh, predominantly in the United States, although we have a product in Canada in the United Kingdom. And at this point in time, we're about 1,300 full-time employees across the, those same geographies, so the U.S. and Canada pre- predominantly. Um, our workforce is in San Francisco, although we are really growing um, pretty rapidly in Charlotte, North Carolina, Um, Which, you know, for people who are interested in finance and know finance, this is, you know, one of the largest banking centers in the United States. So there's a lot of great talent uh, that understands the financial side of our product. Um, And then we have teams in L.A. as well as in London and then Leeds in the United Kingdom, which was an acquisition that we did uh, earlier this year. So, you know, one of the coolest things about being at Credit Karma is, you know, for all of the tech companies that talk about super being super mission oriented we are really that. Um, I mean, our entire mission is about helping people make financial progress um, instead of maybe getting your food two seconds faster or your, you know, sort of laundry delivered or whatever happens. Those are all important things in our lives. But, you know, I've, I've really um, enjoyed that that piece. Um, and the company has, has grown fairly substantially in the, the two years that I've been here. I did take the first chief people officer role here. Um, and the nice part is even before I got here, they had really invested in HR. So, um, I have, um, quite a large HR business partner function. So we have um, 12 people, um, in that side, which for a company of our size is actually really great. Um, which means we want to give a lot of support, especially to our first time managers. They really tend to step in and, and, and partner there. Um, I have a learning and development function. And um, we offer all of our employees $5,000 per year in U.S. dollars um, to do professional development on their own. So we have a team that supports in-house training as well as helping them find what are those professional development opportunities. I have a very large recruiting team because we are in Silicon Valley and we do a lot of hiring. Um, And then um, an HR sort of talent experience and analytics team that, that helps support me. So I feel, you know, one of the things that I was drawn outside of the mission and the CEO was the fact that they really put their money where their mouth was about investing in employees and investing in a team of people who are experts to do it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that that, that is, is important, right? If you're, if you're in an organization that is, especially being a, a San Francisco based or Valley based company, that's It's incredibly competitive. I mean, that's, yeah, that's probably the most obvious statement ever, but the, but the idea of like not having, you know, it's not, and it's not just about recruiting. Like you need to have a massive recruiting team to be able to identify and attract talent, but you need to have the internal programs to be able to retain talent. And you, you know, if you over index on one without the other, that, that mix doesn't work. You've got to find that right equilibrium and resource it in the right way, or you're going to be in trouble.
1: Correct. And that is a, a um, as something that a lot of startups just, they don't think about. And a lot of, you know, I think there are a lot of startup CEOs in particular too, who think the talent part is easy. You know, I've, I, <laughs> I, I laugh at the number of um, sort of, you know, startup CEOs that I have met where they will literally say to me, wow, all of my problems around people and leaders and and I feel like I have to do their jobs and I don't know what I'm going to do. And then the, literally out of the, the next sentence will be, but I don't really need to hire anybody super senior <laughs> in be an HR person. Like I just need right. somebody that can help a little bit. You know, it's like, did you just understand what came out of your mouth? I mean, it's really hard not to laugh. Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's the that investment in the entire employee experience and really what it takes to, you know, sort of cultivate the cultures that sort of and the processes and the tools that align with the vision that the company is espousing is hard. And it, it is an yeah. investment and it is expensive. I mean, it, are, it does take a lot of people to do that really well. Yeah, well, and that's
0: the thing is like those things don't just happen right i think that uh, so many especially for startups that are in, in kind of early stages of growth they they focus so much on recruiting and they're not really putting as much thought into anything else beyond that You're, or like some uh, maybe a little bit but not not investing in it not thinking about it and then they wonder why they can't hold on to people and then they continue to do recruiting so then they have to put more money into recruiting and it's just this cycle where you know they, i think i think we people are starting to get a little more mindful now and and, and particularly i think Hiring a senior level HR leadership, you start to see companies that are investing in a CPO at a much earlier stage, understanding that having that, you know, kind of correct foundation that can scale is really vital to success because it's a lot harder to kind of undo all of your bad habits and redo it once you hit a couple hundred. Right,
1: right. And then I I do think there is an element of um, a lot of times you don't understand what your needs are until you go through some pain. Um, and I think people were able to sort of get by and they are able to get by for a long time on the backs of not necessarily needing to bring in some professional expertise, you know, you're going to get like, Oh, a little consultant. I'm going to talk to this person. Oh, this person was at this other company for a long time. And, you know, and so I don't blame people for being in that position of, you know, thinking that, Oh, I can probably do this or I don't, you know, or I can just grow this junior person into what I need. And. Um, you know, I think unfortunately it really takes something happening before you're like, oh, actually that, that's not working. And it's the same thing in every function. I think finance sees it, legal sees it, infrastructure sees it. Like there's a lot of places that you, it's not, it's not limited to HR. I just think that it's, um, it's sometimes more visible, the mistakes that end up happening. And especially in the world that we live in now. So, um, Hey, I always say I'm thankful to those companies for publicly stumbling because it's just, you know. Given credence and credibility to those of us who are in the in the function ourselves.
0: Yeah, and let's. I want to talk a little bit more about that because you you had a post recently uh, where you had written on LinkedIn about um, just the the pressures that are weighing on a CPO kind of today in business and the fact that you know a lot of people will have a run of you know maybe one or two or a couple startups under their belt before moving on to consulting. Or selling into big companies, and and that that really resonated with kind of our peers in the community. I think people uh, th- this idea of being able to to talk out loud about those pressures and the burnout that they drive uh, is is something that I think a lot of people are feeling. And what where did that post come from? Like I'm curious to kind of you know get get a sense of like where you were when you wrote that and some of the some of the conversations that I know it sparked
1: well, i I wrote it because uh, you know, the opening right, there are a lot of openings for Chief People officers right now. And yeah. um just, and hey, that's great. Uh, <laughs> you know, more mobility for lots of people and growth. Um, and I'd had a couple of board members who are venture capitalists who, you know, kind of seemed surprised and kind of multiple people within like a month period who had come to me and were like, what is it? Like the number one opening in all my portfolio companies is a chief people officer. Like, why is that? And then I had, you know, I often get asked by CEOs, which I loved about like, hey, I'm going to hire my first CPO or my first even just, you know, a head of HR who, you know, what should I look for and what is that role and what, what do I do? And, you know, I was having to explain over and over that like this is a hard job. Like it is hard, at least for me, I mean, and I know for a number of my peers, it is hard to sort of feel like you are on the line for all of the employees experience that you can't actually control. You know, um, I always say, you know, like I still worry at night about the rogue manager who just won't listen and just does something stupid. And, You know, like I could end up on the front page of whatever because this person did something stupid despite trying to do all of the right things. Right. I think it's like any CEO of a business. Um, And, you know, like the things that you are making decisions about, about people's careers, their jobs, their promotions, their development, their compensation, their benefits. All of these are things that people really deeply care about. And want to have conversations about and you can't always you know you're not always doling out cupcakes and candy bars and so um so it's hard you know it's hard to be that person always on the line and sort of you know i i work very transparently and so um i have like a a slack channel that i answer whatever anything and whatever that comes in and you know i don't run away from those hard conversations but it's not always fun um and in doing that multiple times like having to come in prove your credibility prove your worth like who you are how you're making those decisions and then having to sometimes be the bad guy a lot like that's just it's just hard and you know and so what i told all these ceos and these vcs is like who does that like if you've done well and maybe you've had you know i've been lucky to have been through a couple of ipos and you know, you have some experiences that maybe you're in a position where you can make some different choices. Like, why would you do that again? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, I really had to break it down for these people onto like, who does that? Like, why would you go back into working like that? Why would you put yourself? I mean, the time that I did consulting in between some CPO roles, I kind of thought I would stay in consulting it was so much easier to just be behind the scenes and like, you know, okay, here you are the person you're the the general counsel or the CEO or whoever's kind of filling in, who's going to have to send the messages. Like this is what you should say. And these are the things that you should do. And I will manage your team in the background, but I don't have to be the person taking all those shots. Um, you know, it's, it, it could be a lot more comfortable to not have to be on the line. And And I don't think that there's always an appreciation of, you know, sort of what, how hard it can be to be sometimes, sometimes the lone voice um, for kind of what is right for the company for a long time until you can pull everybody along with you. As I say, drag them across the finish line for like, this is the right thing to do. Um, Yeah. It's just, you know, I think it can be exhausting for people. And I don't think that there is a general appreciation Um, And this sounds like whining a little bit, maybe, but like for how hard that job can be and how lonely it can be, because you really don't have a a peer set that you can just open up to all the time in the building for certain. Um, And unless you have a support network of people between your home and and personal life and professionally outside, um, these are really sensitive issues. It's not like you can just go run and talk to everybody about them. So. I think that that's, that's, pro, that's the yeah. root of it. That's where it came from. And I just was like, let me just tell the rest of the world this, <laughs> in, a, in a short, short way. Uh, you know, I imagine,
0: <laughs> I imagine a lot of listeners are nodding their head right now uh, as they're kind of visualizing themselves in that same situation. I, I think the loneliness piece is so real because you, you know, it is such a unique job where you don't. You don't have that. You can't go to your team in most cases. You you can't go to your executive peers in, in many cases, and so you have to kind of hold on to that. And if you don't have professional kind of peer networks outside of your role and kind of phone friends that you could go to and and have some of those conversations, you're you're, you're holding it, and you end up internalizing a lot of it. And that I think can can really burn you out. And you mentioned another piece of just the. Uh, the, you know, seeing, having a manager do something dumb and being in the papers, you know, so much of, if you look at, you know, the recent, uh, you know, issues with Away or, you know, issues with WeWork or issues with uh, Uber, you know, there's pick, pick your very public example. I think so many times in all those scenarios, there are people on the outside pointing fingers, saying, right. you know, where was HR? You know, where where was the people team in safeguarding the organization? Well, they have no idea that in many of those cases there there likely was uh, you know, attempts at pushback that maybe didn't go anywhere. So the assumption is just that HR was absent, you know, and then that makes it really difficult as well.
1: Right. I think that's uh I, I, you know, I'm I didn't work at any of those companies, so I can't comment on that, but I always have a lot of empathy for those companies when they are going through those situations, because, um, you know, I'm certain that there were great people there who were really, if they, if they hired, you know, people from the profession who had a great skill set or background who probably were really fighting hard to do the right thing. And, and it does, you know, it's either there are leadership mistakes and then there are sort of line level mistakes and it's, you know, you can't be everywhere all the time. You got to trust your people. You got to try and hope for the best that you've hired great people with good judgment who are exercising that good judgment. And then, you can only influence for, for so long. I mean, I, uh, to be you know honest, I I went through this, we had a very, when I worked at Zynga, we had a very public um, outing of some decisions we had made around some executive compensation decisions. And, you know, we had made the decision, we had a couple of executives, we had three executives who weren't scaling and weren't performing and the board and the, and the CEO felt very strongly that, you know we should you know we should renegotiate their unvested equity because they were making hundreds of millions of dollars on paper and they weren't performing or were gonna go have to hire somebody else and i i mean i fought that for almost nine months probably before and eventually they said no we're gonna go do this you need to go do this and you know so i had to go approach three executives and say hey i've got to renegotiate your unvested equity i got to hire over you and you know the backlash on that was horrible uh, for years. And people, Oh, you took yeah. away stock. I mean, even it has followed me wherever I have worked since. And that's, you know, like a long time ago in my career. And, you know, they don't <laughs> have all that nuance, all the, you know, all that was reported was we took away stock from some people. Now they never reported that two of those executives stayed with the company of the three, you know, like, um, there's just so much nuance, but I also like, it was hard on me at the time. Like it was a really hard, decision um to have to go do it's not something that i was super excited or nor did i support but hey that was my job so um so i think that there's just a lot of things that people um you sort of have to deal with in the background and then to have that added burden of the public spotlight um that you can't control the narrative of the media is is incredibly challenging
0: yeah well, I think, uh, again, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that that topic because I do think it's something that is certainly being felt quite a bit by your peers. And I think the more uh, people can kind of see it and connect to it and relate uh, to those stories, the, the more they know it's it's not just them. And it's something that uh, I, I think a lot of people are uh, are kind of navigating um, right now. Right. But the, the last question I have for you, Colleen, when you think about kind of you've, you've been in this space, you've worked in a variety of companies with with uh, you know, stellar kind of people teams. When you think of 21st century HR, uh, how would you define that?
1: Sure. You know, I always say that, you know, our teams are really designed around saying yes. And we've really moved into this space where there is an appreciation for the idea that there are a lot of business problems that are almost always rooted in our number one cost, which is labor. And that our job is that we are helping our business leaders get to a position that we're able to actually give them solutions that will help them solve those business problems. And the fact that we have that trust right now to do that and that platform means that we are in this great consultant position to be this expert on talent that we don't necessarily have to put that burden back on the business leader. We have to give them choices. And so I always say like, my, my operating philosophy is we say yes, unless it's illegal or stupid. Like that's my general thing. Like this is what I tell my teams all the time. Um, and I, and that, I, that
0: sounds like a t-shirt. We, we may need to make a
1: t-shirt with that. You know, and, and in <laughs> the reason I say that is because when a business leader comes to you with an idea that actually, you know, you're like, oh my God, this is so dumb. Um, it's because they have a problem and they don't understand and we have all these tools now that we can be great at saying like, here's all this data. Let me help you understand this is your problem. Here's some data around your talent and your, and your employees or the outside market or labor costs or all of these kinds of things. And then here's my experience and here's who you have. Let's go forth and find a better solution. Um, we have that opportunity now. We are not, you know, we don't have to be, nor is there an expectation that we will be hiding behind our employee handbook and that this is the rule. So, you know, like, as soon as we continue to be those partners where our leaders say, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't have that HR business partner or boy, that recruiter was so right when they said, Hey, this smart, this job is going to take probably this amount of time to fill because there's nobody who works in those roles in this geography. And you're probably going to have to go and import somebody. And they're like, Oh my gosh, you have all this data. You have this knowledge set. This is so helpful. Um, that is 21st century HR. It is the unlocking of the trusted credibility relationship that wasn't there before.
0: Yeah, I I love that, and I think you you just nailed on so many great points that are, um, to me, just I think illuminate the difference between kind of legacy transactional HR and modern HR. So, uh, Colleen, I could I could probably spend another hour with you, but uh, but we won't <laughs> do that to listeners. So I'm gonna wrap this up. But I did want to thank you for coming on and sharing your you know your your career path, your your journey, and uh, wisdom, and, and certainly your thoughts around the topic of burnout, because that is uh, such an important topic. And I appreciate you and your leadership there.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire you'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it. And so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.